Hello everyone, my name is Peter Vermees and I am the Sporting Director and Manager of Sporting Kansas City. We are a uh, football club in Major League Soccer in the United States. The question that always gets asked to me is, what does football mean to me? And it's pretty simple. It's my passion, it's my love. Obviously my family always comes first, but I think all of us strive to find something in life that we can find success and find our passion, the thing that excites us the most. And that's what football is to me. Welcome to season three of Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast or my other cultural activities, please visit my website, culturreum.com, C-U-L-T-U-R-E-U-M.com, and or my social media pages at DRJ Podcast or at Quadil, Q-U-A-D-Y-L-L-E. To kick off this season, I would like to offer you an episode on the sport that is known in the U.S. as soccer and referred to everywhere else in the world as football. To use Pierre Bourdieu's terms, football has a significant culture-binding effect through the exchange of cultural and social capital that it facilitates. To put it simply, football, as in soccer, has an amazing culturally unifying effect. About 4% of the world's population, which is about 265 million people, play soccer themselves as a pastime or a hobby sport. As a spectator sport, soccer is also the most popular sport in the world, with a following of about 4 billion people. With me today to talk about this wonderful sport is Peter Vermees, Vermes Peter, the manager, director, and head coach of sporting in Kansas City. He is a former professional soccer player, he played professional soccer in Hungary and in the Netherlands before moving on to Major League Soccer, playing as a defender for the Metro Stars, the Colorado Rapids, and the Kansas City Wizards. He was on the U.S. national soccer team between 1988 and 1997. He went to the Olympics with the U.S. national team in 1988 and played in the World Cup in 1990. He is, as of 2020, the longest tenured head coach in Major League Soccer. Welcome, Peter, to the show. Thank you. It's great to always, be here. And I always say Peter. I like it. <laughs> I wrapped up season two of the podcast with an interview with my dad, Istvan Steve Yavrek, Coach Pop. And I have asked him to help me out in this interview to compensate for my limited amateur knowledge of soccer. My father is the former National Olympic weightlifting coach to Romania and a USA College and Strength Conditioning Coaches Hall of Famer. Welcome back, Daddy, to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, let's go on to the questions. Peter, your family immigrated from Hungary in the 1950s, and your father was a soccer player himself. What role did soccer play in your household, and how did you come to play it? So probably unbeknownst to me, you weren't allowed to do anything else but play soccer in my family. But I, I'm kidding in a way. I'm, I'm joking in a way. But... There's also a little seriousness to that as well, especially for me. My father saw that I kind of had the quality. I had the ability maybe to be a, a good player one day. And I also think that he realized that it's not about doing everything. It's also sometimes if you're good at something, that's what you focus on because that's where you can find your success. And if you're going to be, if you're going to be a pro, then you have to put your time in. And 
it wasn't as if he pushed me to go and train every day and do all those things. It was more, you need to keep your focus on, you know, one thing, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't play all, I played all the other sports, but I played them as a kid. I didn't play on organized teams, but truly soccer was everything to me. I loved it. I, I'm, I love the, the tradition of the sport. I love the, the history of the sport. And, and at the same time, uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, um, you know, not only the sport, but just the history of it. And so I'm, uh, I was very fortunate to have sort of that person in my life that had done it prior to, to me invoking on this, this challenge and, and this pursuit of a, a vocation in soccer. Mm-hmm. Do you by some chance remember the first time you played soccer? Yeah, I mean, well, I can remember all the way back to I was probably three, four years old, uh, kicking the ball um, in my backyard. And I can remember my father commenting, like he was surprised how um, good my timing was mm-hmm. in striking a ball. Because it's, it's like golf, right? Mm-hmm. There's some people who their swing is just flawless. Mm-hmm. And, and my striking of the ball was that way. And I can remember being like four years old and mm-hmm. him... So like seeing, reacting, seeing the talent. Yes, reacting. Ex, you know, so excitedly that oh wow, like like I can't believe, and I could do it with both feet. So I can. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I can do. I, I I've always I was always very good with both feet. Even though I was dominant right, I could play very well with my left as well. You know, there's ambidextrous. What is what is it for feet? Ambipedus? Amb- no, is it? that's right. That, <laughs> but it is. That's right. I'm, I mean, I I for sure. I'm a person that you could say that you you know could play at a high level with both feet really really well. I was uh, reading an article about um, some deal you made with your father for a television set, something like that, yeah. where you had to, and then you scored 11 goals in one game. Or <laughs> yeah, so so I was six years old and I was playing on a U9 team, and this is the first time my dad coached me uh, on a team because I had two older brothers and he was coaching them all the time, so he wasn't coaching my teams, and I had already been playing competitive soccer since age four but I was always playing up with older kids and so I don't know how we got onto it but I had said to him before the season started um uh I said if I score 50 goals will you buy me a tv and he said sure never gonna happen right <laughs> what I also knew about my father was is that he believed if you made a bet you had to follow through right I mean it was a big big it was a big big thing in my my household so anyway Friendly bet between him and I, and I remember we we had a, a, a 10 game season, and we were on game number, I think it was number seven or eight, and I had 41 goals. <laughs> and we were driving, getting to the game, and I said, Dad, did you bring your money with you today? And he said, <laughs> he had no idea what I was talking about. And uh, I said, I want to get the TV after the game. And he said, come on, I wound up scoring 11 goals in that game. And he went out and bought TV, but it was not good in the household because my brothers and my sister were not very happy because they were all older than me. So this was your TV. This was in your room. It was in my room. Now, my one brother who we're in the same room together, he benefited, but he couldn't touch the TV unless it was okay with me. Okay. And did you experience any pressure with, with this? I mean, I know it's sort of, you know, my father is sitting here as well. I didn't have, he, you didn't pressure me with sports. I mean, I always, I always did a lot of sports from fencing to swimming to everything, but you pressured me academically. So did you, did you feel there was any sort of pressure or did you just love it? Yeah, I, I remember my father always saying something 
But I, I, again, you know these things later in life, right? So my oldest brother was a very good player, really good soccer player. And my father, I used to hear him tell people, he's like, look, his older brother, I used to push him. And when I pushed him, okay. he went further and further away from the sport. When I push Peter, it's, it's, I can't give him enough. Like, I can't push him enough. So I never really saw it that way. For me, it was what I wanted to do. I loved it. Like, my father never had to tell me, hey, you have to go out in the backyard and practice. Or you. Mm-hmm. I went and did all that stuff myself. And I think if you're ever going to be good in something, you have to have motivation from within. So it was, it was never pressure for me. The, the other thing, too, is, is that I've always, even when I got to the professional level, um, Sure, I was nervous sometimes, but that's more of an excited nervousness for games or what have you. Even as a coach, I'm always excited about the start of the game, right? But I'm also, I also always knew something very, very important, I believe, and that is I never took what I was doing for granted. I've always realized that I've been very fortunate to be a professional soccer player to now being a coach. I, I've always said that if you're, if you're a sports person, being a professional in that sport that you love, that's the best profession in the world. Mm. For me, the second is being a coach because I'm still very close to it and I'm getting a chance to participate in a very similar way. I just can't get on the field anymore. Mm. Um, but I don't take it for granted. I'm extremely fortunate to do what I do every day. And so that's why I, I probably don't feel the pressure because it's more of um, – the respect I have for for doing what I do. You speak of the golden era of Hungarian soccer and having having been influenced by this. Um, you, I've I've heard a couple interviews uh, where you mentioned having met Ferenc Puskás, for example. Um, how have your Hungarian origins and the experiences you had playing in Hungary affected the way you see soccer or the way you the way you play or coach soccer? Yeah, I, probably you would you would relate to what I'm going to say. As much as I grew up in America, when you walked into my household, it was, it was like you were in Hungary. As soon as you came into my house, it was like my, so my mother and father were both Hungarian. Every, everything my mom cooked was from scratch. It was all Hungarian food. I mean, the first time I had spaghetti and meatballs was I was 16 years old. I, I didn't have other food. I didn't really, we didn't go to McDonald's. We didn't do those things. We were, we were a Hungarian household. So in my house, it was soccer. It was all that. So, so I had the heritage in one side. And then I had the world sport on the other. And, and the two just were seamless with each other, right? Mm-hmm. There, were, there, was, there was no disconnect there. And, and so all the times that I traveled back to Hungary and I was, uh, I can remember I'd come back and I'd play in the street right out in front of the house that we stayed at, which was my uncle's. And I'd play with all the kids in the neighborhood. And, in Hungary. Yeah. And so I was, I was Hungarian. Um, and I, I always saw myself as um, Hungarian when I was growing up as a kid because that's what we spoke at home that's everything uh, so it had a major influence on me everything about it and then you got to remember my father had played with Pushkash so all the stories um, and, and that's one of the things I think I really haven't ever said all that much because I think what people think is when your father's a professional player they think like well your father takes you outside and trains you every day and works with you and pushes you and all that stuff It really wasn't like that with my father. He didn't really train me like you would think. Um, his training was more the stories. And those stories captured, like, I love stories, right? I love, 
I love hearing about all the things that he went through as a pro and he would tell me different things. Like his way of getting to me would be say like, if I got a little bit of injury, he would say, you know, if you're going to be a pro one day, you have to be able to pay, play with pain. And so that connection was made. Or it's, an example of uh, his own injuries or fellow players. Correct. And, and so to make it to that level, you have to be tough. And so that was more instilled through the storytelling than so much like, hey, you have to play today because you're hurt. It's a big difference. And so that, I think that had a lot to do with my formidable years. How do you think a Hungarian plays football differently? Since, since you're saying, you know, sort of yeah. there are different influences. How do you think, you know, in the style of football, how do you think it's different? Well, I think if, if when you ask that question, what you really have to go to is, the personality of Hungarian people. And so, again, being very fortunate having gone there from when I was a really little kid and being able to understand and see how people, because you got to remember when I was going there, it was, it was under communist rule. But it was always interesting. You'd have a teacher who was making $1,000 to $2,000 a year salary being a teacher, but somehow they built a $50,000 house. How could they do that? Because the resilience of Hungarian people is this way of survival, of making it, not allowing to be the victim, not uh, uh, using excuses. You know, there's a, there's a great line, right? And the line is, is that there's a big difference between uh, uh, interested and commitment. Mm -hmm. Interested means that when everything's right, it, sure. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. But when you're committed, there are no excuses. You're only about the result. And so I, I think Hungarian people are, they're committed people, right? They, they find a way. They don't accept the excuses. They fight for it. And I would say that what was instilled in myself and my brothers and my sister was this hard work that, you know, the only thing that's going to stop you from doing what you're going to do is yourself. The others, they could be a, they could be an obstacle, but you can get around it or you can get over it, you get under it, you can go through it. Mm -hmm. But you can find a way if you want to do it. And I, and I think when, when I see Hungarian people, I mean, a lot of people don't look at these things, but just go on Google and, and type in Hungarian inventors and look at all the things that Hungarians have invented. It's incredible. Mm. Like you just, you're, sure. you're surprised. And so I think it's because of the heritage and the, that makeup of survival is, is, is in us. And if you ask my father, um, he will tell you that sort of, um, he's a master at this sort of, he, he kind of somehow deduces and reduces everything to Hungary. So, <laughs> so somehow everybody has Hungarian uh, yeah, origins. I got it. <laughs> and about uh, the Hungarian uh, famous people, the most Nobel Prizes by population are the Hungarian people. They have more Nobel Prize winner than any other country in the world. I didn't know that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow, incredible. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm also very proud to be Hungarian, and I think I share that with you, that I, that I have this 
um, division, or maybe it's not a division, it's a, a, a union of Hungarian and Americans. I, I really see myself as Hungarian-American. I have this very strong American side, and yet I'm, I'm very Hungarian, so it's, I completely understand what you mean. And, and you know my parents personally as well. So And, and I've been to your house, yeah, so, so you I see. know when you walk in, it's... <laughs> it's Hungarian. That's right. You have the Hungarian plates on the walls. Yep. It smells like Hungarian food. It's, yeah. it's Hungarian. So. But it's great. I mean, yeah, it is. Sure. It's a... It's a when you, and again, you'll relate, when you, when you grow up in that environment and you, uh, you know it, it's, it's, there's no way to replicate it unless you're in it. Mm-hmm. And so people that have never experienced it don't truly understand it. But when they do, I, I think that they're mesmerized by it mm-hmm. because they almost are in a state of they wish that they had been a part of that their whole life. Mm-hmm. I, I get that all the time. Mm-hmm. So you've also played soccer in the Netherlands. How would you compare the two styles? The Netherlands is, a, first off, a great country. I had a tremendous experience there. Every, everywhere I played, it was, it was always a, a great experience. But I'd say that the Netherlands is, was much different, and that was the coaching was truly around the development of the player, where I think where Hungary is so much more of a, it's a survivalist environment, right? Uh-huh. You, you, you have to fight for it. They make they 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 make you do that as well, right? Because they feel that that's what's going to give you that long term success, right? Well, and I think just uh, for for the listeners who who don't come from Eastern Europe or from from countries that have had uh, political and social problems, um, sports was always under the communist regime was a way to travel, was a way to that's that's how you traveled as well. That was a way to know. Uh, the world, a way to make money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so so I think that's that's also still there, instilled in the people that, well, you, you, you just got to do it. It's just this. That, that's right. And so in, in Holland, where the difference is, is that when, when, when you're playing in Hungary and you're told to do something on the field, you do it. When you're in Holland, players ask, well, why? <laughs> okay. They were allowed to do that. They were they were encouraged to do that. It was a, it was a totally now. I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong. Oh, it's just different. It, it was just different. And so, but I also think what happens to you when you're in, when you come from the Hungarian world, if you will, your ability to adapt and adjust, I think a lot of times is is much easier. Whereas when you're in other places, if you were to go there, I think it's much more difficult for people to then find success in those countries because mm-hmm. changing your personality to that is much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Getting somewhere and listening to guys talk about why and all those other things, I, it's different. But I remember, so I'll give you a quick little anecdote. So I, I, I go to my, you know, I'm in, I'm in my first year at, in Holland and I'm playing in, or I'm in preseason and uh, uh, we played five games in the preseason to get ready for the season. So um, I missed the first game because I was traveling and I got, okay. you know, I got delayed. And so I, I made it for the second. So second game, I played 90 minutes. Third game, I played 90 minutes. Fourth game, I played 90 minutes. And so now we're playing the fifth game. And the coach uh, is talking to us that, hey, this is our last game before we get ready for the season. So he started asking some guys on the team. He's like, how long do you want to play in today's game? Because, you know, I don't want to push everybody. I want to get you ready for the first game. So he asked a couple guys on the team. And, you know, guy was like, I, I, I like to play 45. And the guy's like, I'd like to play the last 30 minutes, whatever. And he got to me. And I said, yeah, I want to play 90 minutes. Mm. And then he stopped. And he turned to all the guys. And he was, 
that should be all of your answer. Mm. Should You should want to play 90 minutes. And he goes, we need more of that in the group. I would never have thought anything different. And so, but I believe that came from my Hungarian heritage. Um, not to say that Americans don't go for it and all stuff. It was just the way that I was brought up. Mm-hmm. And your personality in that way. Yeah, for sure. But, but I think, again, your, your personality a lot of times gets shaped also by your life experiences. And my life experiences were my... My house, my environment. Well, uh, sorry. But about the uh, Dutch, uh, soc- Dutch soccer or football, uh, I wrote in my interview with you about uh, Istvan Kovac. Do you think that he had an influence because he was for the total soccer, so back and forth, the whole team? Yeah. I remember in 1966 at the World Cup, the Dutch team was going all team forward or back. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he had an influence on, on developing more of this kind of... Uh, attacking a style of, of total soccer? For sure, uh, no doubt. I, I think, you know, there's there's been periods of, of whether it's it's a time period or different people have had incredible influences on changing the game. The 1950s, the, the Hungarian team at that time, we talk about the golden era, that had such an influence on soccer around the rest of the world. I mean, there there is a quote that states that you know, the Hungarian team was the Brazilians of Europe, mm-hmm. right? They, they they were so good. I mean, uh, when they beat England in Wembley 6-3, to three, uh, the players said that they were as if there was a team from another planet. <laughs> They'd never seen anything like it. And so that uh, quality, that ability at that time influenced it. The same co- coaches. There was a player, a lot of people don't even talk about it. There's a player that played in Barcelona in the, in the 50s, Kubali. He was a Hungarian. He, he's one of the most influential players that ever played at Barcelona, but he doesn't get talked about all that much. But when you really read the books that are out there and they tell the real information, he is one of the you know the main characters of the success of that, that, Same that thing country. Pushkas. Correct. Yeah, they made a statue for him. Right. And again, even that, uh, you know, there was a great player uh, in Di Stefano that played for Real Madrid. And he was the the star player at Real Madrid, when Pushkash came there, in his first game, he was playing there playing together, he realized that guys in the team were not giving him the ball. So he went to this Stefano at halftime and told him, he said, hey, look, I want you to tell, I want to tell you this. You better tell all these guys that they better start giving me the ball because the difference between me and the rest of them is this. They may give you 10 balls in a game and you will only score two goals. I give you three balls, you score three goals. So you better start telling them, give me the ball. And guess what? They started giving him the ball. He started scoring. He started giving assists to the Svano, and they were winning and winning and winning. And that was the influence of Hungarian soccer, they developed the 4-to-4 system. Yep. No, no they, they, look, there's been, there's been a lot of influence, I think, of Hungarian soccer around the world. I think what happened was is that There was a period in which once communism really started to take to effect, I think what happened is is that because of the culture, the culture got changed quite a bit and everybody was looking out for themselves mm-hmm. and they weren't as much a team anymore. I think they're getting back to that now and that's why you're seeing a, a different Hungarian a team. team. You're mm-hmm. starting to see it. Starting to see. And, and you have influence from the outside world because it's not like Hungary does everything perfect, right? No country does. But it's also good to go and see other ways of doing things, right? It, it, it's why different teams can win 
under different types of coaches, right? It's not only one way to do it. Mm. But when you get that experience and you get that knowledge, you can bring that back to the country and it can change the way they see things or the way they do things. And I think that's what you're seeing now in Hungary. Would you indulge me and, and uh, describe, in your opinion, how sort of the style of, let's say, Italian soccer or French soccer or Argent? For example, I get really upset with the Italian soccer players. I find it, yep. <laughs> I find that they sort of they're very theatrical and throw themselves on the ground and always complaining. And yes, <laughs> and, and they're also very defensive. They're very like they're very tactical in their defensive shape, and so they are always a team that. Defends, 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 and finds that one moment that they can counterattack <laughs> and beat you. And it's not the most attractive style, if you will. The French, I think, have combined a couple of things. I think they've combined incredibly, incredible individual athleticism and technique, and they have a a fantastic flair of going forward, attacking. Mm-hmm. It's, I got goosebumps when you said that. You know, they're 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 very good like that. Where then. You take um, Spain thinks that always everybody has to touch the ball before they can take a shot on goal. <laughs> and okay. it's their style. Now it's been successful. But I think what's happening is, is that a lot of countries are catching up in different ways. Mm-hmm. The, the biggest thing that has changed in the game is, is, is two things. One is all the players, including the goalkeeper, everybody can play with the ball. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. has a high quality, high, high level of technique. That's one. The other is, is that the athleticism in the game is incredible Mm. and so when you have those two things it all of a sudden becomes that teams there are countries that weren't so good can now compete and the difference is going to be the individual quality of one or two players in a team they can make the difference how would you describe german soccer it's it's never changed in this regard it is they are the most um disciplined team in to me in the world and there's there's one key thing that they do differently than all the other countries and that is when they could win five games in a row and then the sixth game they could lose and and let's say it could be a disaster of a game they don't panic and they don't leave who they are they go they stay with it now it's not to say that they're oblivious to what their mistakes could be no what they don't do is they don't panic and change they they believe in what they do and they keep doing it. And that consistency usually yields results. It's a gentlemanly football, isn't it? Or soccer, I should say. It is. It is. There's a, there's a, there's a level of arrogance mm-hmm. and, a, and a true discipline to their, to their way of playing. And now we're going to stereotypes, but that is, it would be a description of the German people as well. Sure. I mean, living in Germany, having lived in Germany now for 20 years, um, I find that very much so. That, that, yeah. yeah, but but it should. But I, but I think that a world sport, right? It's the national sport. It, it it's going to take on. It should. If the if the country is going to be successful, it's going to take on the the culture of the country. Mm-hmm. It, it should be in the team. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the things I would say when I when I when I took over the team here. I thought long and hard about how this club was going to play. When I invoked the style, people would ask me, like, you know, how did you come up with it? I said it was really simple. I thought about our ownership group. And they were five gentlemen who have been very successful in their lives and business. They were all entrepreneurs, which to me is taking risks. Mm -hmm. And so the way we play is normally we're going after the game. I don't want to sit back. I want to go take the game to the other team. Mm -hmm. I want to be on the front foot. And it was really a direct correlation to who the ownership group was, 
and that's the way we try and play. So how do you think it's different um, when a player approaches national teams or clubs? We talked about national character of, yeah. the, of the various teams. I know that, for example, uh, my students are, are, rather than being national fans, they are big fans of Chelsea or Real Madrid or... FC Bayern or Borussia Dortmund. These are, I've learned all these from my students. So, um, you know, and they, that's where they completely identify with the team and support it. Um, also, I think, but, but actually I'm asking you the question, do you think the players or a lot of the players identify more with a club or more with the, with the national team? I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that they identify with one or the other. I think what it is is it's, it's, a, it's a different mindset. Because when you, when you play for your club, it's kind of your everyday job, if you will, mm -hmm. right? It's your everyday thing you do. You're, you, you know, you, if you play a 30, 40-game season, you at least have half of those games in your home stadium. So you're in front of your home fans. There is a real connection, right? It's an everyday connection. It, it's kind of like you eat with your mom and dad, you know, every night of the week. But, you know, once a month you go over to, say, your uncle's house. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's family. Extended family. It's mm -hmm. family, right? It's, it's, it, there's a tremendous amount of respect for that, right? It's a special event that you're going to. So it's, it's a little different, right? So when you go to the national team, you're now representing something completely different. You're re representing your country. It, it's, it's, uh, and it's a different feel inside. Um, I can remember, you know, I remember playing in the World Cup in 1990 and playing in Rome against Italy in the group stage. It is it probably one of my most memorable <laughs> games just because of the environment, you know, it was fantastic. And it's different. You're representing your country. You know, like it's, it's the American flag. It's the red, white, and blue. That's what you're doing. It's completely different than your club. Whereas when you play with your club, Now all of a sudden you're playing against other club teams or even if you're playing against a club team from another country, even it's international, but you're still representing your club. It's, 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 a, it's a different way of, of feeling about it. Mm -hmm. So how do you as a coach and as a manager and director uh, create this culture? I know you're, you're very big on, on soccer culture and, and, and club culture. Um, so absolutely, I completely agree with you. I think when you, have, when you hear the anthem, when you see the flag, when you, and there are these extended family feelings uh, with, with your nationality or with your national team. Um, with your club, in your club, you have many nationalities represented. How many nationalities are in? Probably like 13. 13 in yeah. sporting. Yes. So how do, you, how do you stay true to these players' uh, national style, to their personalities, um, but still create a culture that represents your club and unites the, the, the players? Yeah, well, this is a, this is a great question. I, I think I come at it from a couple different angles. The first thing is, is that I think it's a privileged to play for your country, whether that's America, whether that's Hungary, whether that's Germany, wh wh whatever country. So I have players on my team from all different places and they play for their countries, right? Roger Espinosa played for Honduras, although he's, he has his American citizenship, but he was born in Honduras, so he chose and elected to play there which I completely respect. But he had, a, he had an ability to play for the U.S., but he chose to go with his home country. But it's, again, these, these ancestry and, and roots and sort of these deeply historical uh, uh, roots as well so that, that matter and can, can be absolutely honored. Sure, and it's, and it's the, it, it's, again, it goes back to your life experiences, right? It's, it's what you're connected with. And so I have a tremendous amount of respect. I think that's, that's a privilege to do that. At the same time, I, I'll relate it to all businesses. 
I think probably some of the misused words in the in the world of business is culture, leadership, people growth. I think it's it's just buzzword. I probably formulated my ideas decades ago when I was a player because I played for a lot of coaches. I played for a lot of teams. I played for a lot of good coaches, but also played for a lot of bad coaches. And I do think that those are also good experiences because I learned things that I did not want to do if I ever became a coach one day. I said, hey, I would never do that. Or you know what? That That is something that I would really take and put it in my own way and, and I would do that. And so there's a couple of things. Let's forget about soccer for just a moment, but I'll make my examples in soccer. When I was a player and I was playing on a team, I had players on my team that probably fit in three buckets. One was there was a guy who was on my team that was a really good soccer player and I really liked his personality and I would easily go to breakfast, lunch, or dinner and I loved playing with him on the field and I had respect for him in his game. The second group of people was guys that were really good soccer players but I didn't like them personally. So I didn't go out with them breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And then the third group normally was the group that I didn't like them as people but more importantly, they I didn't have any respect for them in the way that they went about their professional life. And so for me, when I played, it was only about one thing. I only wanted to win. I, 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 didn't, I didn't need to go with all those guys to breakfast, lunch. I wanted to win in the field. That's what I wanted to do. At the same time, I didn't have any control over any of those guys. It wasn't my decision to put them in the team or not put them in the team. That was the coach's decision. So I had no, I had to figure out a way how to work with them and accomplish the goals that were set out. But I said to myself, if I'm ever going to be in a position, whether it's in soccer or anything in business, I want to be around people that have the same type of passion, have the same ideas. Not to say that we can't conflict because you have to have, if you're going to have success, you have to have conflicting uh, opinions and all those other things because conflict gets you to the best decision. Just ask my husband. There you go. <laughs> my wife. Sorry. <laughs> um, but the big thing is for me is that it was the same thing with players. I, if I'm going to coach a team, I have to be around players that share that as well. And if, whether it's a staff member or a player, and they don't, then they won't be here long. And people will say, well, that's really cold. It's not. Because when I come to work every day, I want to come to a place where I enjoy the people I'm with, that they also want to protect and defend the environment that's been created so that when you come here, you not only feel good about the place you're going to, but you feel like you're actually in a place where you can be heard. They may not do everything that you say, but at least you can be heard, you can have input, and at the same time that, that you're all on the same path to achieve the ambition that you want to achieve. If you don't have that environment every day, I don't think you're happy in your job. And I would, I would submit that 95% of businesses around the world do not have a good culture. And I think the biggest reason why is, is two. One is it's a lack of consistency in the people at the organization, right? Because if, if it's hard to keep a culture going if you don't have the same people there. But the number one thing is, is leadership. Mm -hmm. If you have good leadership, then the culture starts to permeate. And the most, you know, uh, probably the most rewarding thing in a culture is, is that when the people you are with, you can start to see them protecting and defending the culture on a daily basis. I think it's absolutely very significant what you're saying and, and very important and very beautiful as well. I mean, it's um, absolutely, I, I think. It, trans, it transcends soccer. Sure, sure. Right? I think I think in any field that there, there's so many, I mean, we can go into politics with it or, or business or any any area. And I completely agree with you. And it's also, also from the top, the top down. 
the, the culture, the, the attitude, the general attitude towards people, towards work, towards uh, everything uh, from the top down will matter. And also from bottom up as well. From the, the head coach to the janitor, to it, it has to be the same, quote unquote, loosely used term culture. And, um, and I think one of the things that, that, you're, that you're mentioning is something that I also heard in a recent interview with you, um, that you said that soccer players are always searching for a home. And when you were just now describing how you go about uh, conducting your business at sporting, it's a difference uh, between a job and a job, um, like what you were saying, a job I can do well or not well, like the people I'm working with or not, achieve the best results we can, but it is what it is. And then there's this feeling of home. And of course, we're using this loosely. I mean, you have a family, you know, sort of players have families. Of course, family is first, but there is this sense of home through your calling. And for you, soccer, for the soccer players, soccer is your calling. It is. And, and I think when you, when, yeah, and, and I know the exact, exactly what you're talking about when you say the home, I, 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 would, I would say it this way, is that I think players and staff members were, were always searching for a home. And, and I mean that because what happens is that, again, you can relate this to other businesses as well, right? Um, most people, they work in a company for a couple of years and they, 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 they see and think that this, this other job or this other thing is really, um, it's better for them, right? Um, you know, you can look over there. I have a little, I have a little uh, sign up there that basically, or a little saying that basically says, I'm too busy working on my own grass to see if your grass is greener, right? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not searching for all these other things out there. This is what I do. I want to make this the best I possibly can. And so when... When you say you're looking for, when I say, you know, everybody's looking for a home, and that is, I don't know if this is going to be the only home that people who come play or work here are going to ever have, but at least while they're here, it's it's their home. And I know that as a player, I was always searching for a home because when I got to a club and I started playing for that club, it was almost like somebody took, you know, a tattoo machine, even though I don't have any, like tattooed it on my heart. And when, like, if I, if for some reason I got traded or moved or whatever, it was as if you tore my heart, my heart out because I, you know, I believed in it that much. And, and so I, I look at it, and that's the other thing about success is that you, when you're good at something, when you're finding success, and again, it has all varying degrees of what that means. But if you're doing well at what you do, people are going to come and seek you out. You don't have to seek them out. You, you know, you don't have to go and find Oh, I need this job. I want that job. I want it's going to happen because you're good at what you do, not because you were the person that found it first. Because you may not be really good at what you do, and so I, I just think players, staff members, they all want a place that they can really feel comfortable and achieve the things that they want. I also believe, like there was a kid here, Busio, uh, John Luca Busio. We sold him this year. He was a young kid. He came into our club at 14. We signed him at 16. We sold him just this past year uh, to an Italian club. I knew when we first met with him that his ambition was he wanted to play in Europe. Well, of course I wanted the kid to stay here because he was doing so well, but then I wouldn't be fulfilling what I uh, espouse on a, on a regular basis. And that is, I'm here to help him also achieve his ambition. If his ambition is to go somewhere else, then I'm not going to hold him back. And so that's one of the reasons why we, we moved him on. But that was because it was a, an agreement between both parties. And so it's part of also our job to help people achieve. And sometimes their ambitions are outside of here. 
-hmm. You were talking about how your father introduced you to professional soccer and through the stories and personal stories. And through my father, I've had the privilege of, of meeting a lot of athletes and professional athletes. And one of the things that, that really strikes me always is how much athletes travel and how much athletes have to uh, survive here and there and everywhere. I've had some professional basketball players that I've been friends friends with. Um, but, but it doesn't matter. It transcends. It goes through all the sports. How do you create a home for your soccer players here? You know, what, what are... Um, I've, I've, I've done a little bit of research. So I kind of almost know the answer, but please tell our listeners. Um, what are some of the things that you do to create a home away from home beyond just the sense of, of a club and a club culture, but actually giving them um, yeah, these, these, these roots, this feeling of it's okay also so that they can flourish. It's okay. You can calm down. You're safe. You're, um, the, this feeling of, of nurturing. Yeah. So. You obviously will relate to this, right? You grew up here. This is a very friendly environment, right? Kansas City and the outlying you know, suburbs, whatever. It's just friendly people, great place to grow up, incredible school system. And so obviously when players come to us, they have different situations, right? So sometimes they're married, sometimes they're married with kids, and sometimes they're not married. Maybe they come with a girlfriend or maybe they're single. In all those respects, this is a great place for whoever's coming. It gives you also a chance to focus on what it is you're here for. At the end of the day, they're here to play on the team. When their outside life is calm and, and it is secure, if you will, you know, if, if their wife and their kids are in a the wife loves the place where they live, the kids have a good school system, they have good friends, normally, then they're a little bit more settled. So that's a really important aspect that we, we and we have a person here is called our director of player care. The care really is their family, and we help them get acclimated, doctors, you name it. So that's one piece. The other is, is that I know this from being a player. There's a lot of times, unfortunately, you're just not told the truth when you ask a question or you want to know something. A lot of times you're lied to to keep you connected, to, to, to keep you engaged. And it's always been my uh, philosophy, and that is I'm going to be honest, but I'm also going to always preface my, my opinion when someone asks for it the same way my father did. If you're really asking for my opinion, understand that I'm going to give it be ready for what I'm going to say. Don't be surprised, right? And so if you really want to know that I'm going to tell you, don't tell me I'm wrong because that's what I truly believe. And so I think honesty is, is, is everything um, in our environment because it, it's, you know, people, people look at professional athletes and they always go, oh, how much money they're making and all these things, but they're people. And, and they, they, they want to, yeah, great, you're paying me millions of dollars, but you're lying to me every day. That's not a good environment. And so they want to be treated as human beings. They want to be treated in a good way. I think when you do that, though, you also, they reciprocate in kind. And that's what you're trying to achieve. You mentioned um, um, eating together and, and things like that as well uh, in the past and in, in this interview as well. Can you maybe uh, say something about that? Yeah. So I know that you eat with your players. Yeah. So we have, so we have, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of control at least a couple meals a day for the players, which is breakfast and lunch. And it's it's mandatory that we, as players and staff, all eat together at the same time. Um, it's mandatory because, especially as we all know, our, our lives have changed a lot because of cell phones and things like that. And people are so much more glued to that than maybe, you know, conversing with a human being. And so I have to create environments where 
we have that. It's almost forced. Um, you know, we don't, I don't allow phones at the at the table, um, which almost forces guys to speak to each other, which is a good thing. And and um, it's funny because what you'll notice when you know we have a, a Latino contingency within our group, they're used to sitting at the table and they usually stay later. But then over time, guys gravitate and you start to see more guys in that section and keeps growing and, and now everybody's not rushing to get away, go, to go home. That's a big part. The other is, is that um, I, I will, I, I personally will um, seek players out uh, or seek the team out after a win and say, hey, you know, let's go back and, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, somehow reward them back at the hotel that they're surprised. You know, they don't, they don't expect that, but they should because, not because it's it should be abnormal, but it's because hey, I, I also want to treat them like men, and 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 we also are a family, and and it's not always when we win. Sometimes I understand that when we lose, hey, they need me more than when we win, right? And I have to be a little bit more present at that moment as well. If you don't mind, I'm going to sure. let my dad say something to this as well. I know you've had a tremendous effect on on your on your athletes, and uh, I know you've always really. Uh, uh, gotten to know them and then gone into their psyche. I, I know, for example, uh, before competitions, you would also do self-hypnosis on, on the players and stand behind them. So so being there for them mentally, um, I know you've been really good at creating this this team feeling and this group feeling. Would you like to say anything oh, about yes. this? Uh, you know, uh, that's very important as a coach to be like a father, like a big father, the second father actually. And uh, so, for example, I had here in Kansas City kids in weightlifting and they, they were from different uh, towns and then when they were here, in the evening I told them, nine o'clock, you have to be at home studying, ten o'clock in bed alone. And then I was <laughs> going in their lockers, I mean in their uh, apartment, and I checked them. And if I found somehow it's not in order, you know, I checked the refrigerator for beer, for everything. <laughs> and then I didn't let them to do that. So I punished them for it. I mean, they get different kind of like push-ups or whatever. But in the meantime, very important to be a, uh, a father in that sense that you control their activities and help them to be in this society. Because like your athletes are not from this city, so they have to feel that, yeah, they are home. Yeah. You bring up something that I think is, is, is really important, and that is there was a, you remember, there was a, there was a football coach, a famous football coach in the NFL, uh, National Football League, Vince Lombardi. And he had, a, he had a saying, and the saying was is that all players want discipline. It's up to the coach to decide how strong or weak the discipline is. I have always found that players... Athletes, they're not, they're not uh, adverse to rules and regulations or anything. It's, it's normally what happens is, is that the coach doesn't follow through on them. And so when you have a lack of consistency there, that usually translates to your results and how you play on the field. And so there, there's, this, there's this element to that. And you're, I mean, you're a father figure, you're a mentor, you're all of those things um, on different days, right? Yeah. There's some days that, look, I'm the coach. There's other days that I have to be a dad. There's other days that I have to be a friend. Um, it, it, it's always something. Yes. And then so always I told to my athletes that I don't waste my time. I don't want to waste my time with you. If you want to work hard, then I respect that. And then I respect all of your activities. But I don't want to do in that way that you are doing some other things and never perform on that level where I expect from you. So I said, no wasting time. When you don't like it, 
then do something else. But as long as you are working with me, do the right way. Maybe that's a great transition into I wanted to ask you about your three rules. Um, you have it also on the wall. So soccer intelligence, work ethic, and a winning mentality. Um, it's it has to do with this as well. So yeah. and there's maybe. one more. And there's one more. Oh, sorry. I team missed. team first. Team first. That's right. And 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 the reason for that, and I'll I'll go through each. For me, um, it's it's interesting. Team sports are. I, people say, oh, they're team sports, but really, you're an individual within a group of people, right? So you have to first take care of yourself. Like you, If you're doing your job, th- that will help the team the most. But I don't build the team around one player and I don't make my decisions around. I build the team with a group of people. You have to be selfless, not selfish. When a player thinks that way as well, then what happens is if they, if they take care of themselves, let's say in the offseason, they work hard, they get prepared for the preseason, they do well in preseason. It's a recipe for success in the season. When you don't do those things, you're being selfish because you have other people that are counting on you. That's what the team sport is. You count on each other, right? It's, it's survival by the group, not survival by one. And so the team is always first here. That's the, that's the number one. The second is intelligence. What I'm not asking the guys is I'm not asking them on Monday morning to perform brain surgery, right? I'm asking them that you you play this sport, there's going to be a game plan. There's going to be tactical nuances that you have to put into the game on Sunday. And when you're asked to do that, do you have the soccer intelligence, the soccer IQ to actually put it in and execute? The work ethic. You said it a second ago. If you're not, if you're, if you don't understand that you have to come and work your butt off every single day at a high level, you're in the wrong place. And, and don't come to me later and say, hey, I really worked hard today, coach. Because to be honest, I don't, that doesn't even factor in. That's the minimum standard. That, that's the minimum standard. If you can't, if you're not going to work, you shouldn't be doing this. And then the fourth is, I, I, I say a winning mentality, but I, tr- I the, the definition of that really is um, the pursuit of excellence in everything that you do. The easiest way to do this one is, is that you can forget about soccer, for example. If you come into any of our facilities. They're clean. They're organized. Everyone understands what their role is, staff-wise, all those things. If a pl- if, if, they're if, friendly. They're polite. They're well-informed. I mean, just they, to yeah, compliment you also it. on, on, and, and, on and walking and, in here. And, so. they, and they should be, right? And so, but an example is, let's say there's a water bottle somewhere. It's, it's incumbent upon them to pick that up and throw it away. Now, I expect that from the players as well. Now, I can't tell you that when they go home, they have a house that's immaculate or it could be a pigsty. I don't know. But what I am hoping is, is that the things that they are learning here are now translating to their other life, which is their life. And those are going to be the lessons that are most important because they're going to be doing that longer their life than they are soccer. Right? Of course, I was coaching much more individually, but uh, the good example right now, I was so impressed when I read on the... I think on Instagram about Charlois, who is uh, scoring 15 goals already. And then one of the game, he was passing the ball to the best position player. So he wasn't selfish. And people said, congratulations, that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's fantastic. Yeah, and, that, and that's, you know, you don't, you don't always um, get there right away. But as a coach, if you can see the progression of the person, that's what you're hoping for, right? I mean, you, you, you don't just say something today and everybody does it. It's how do you get there and you're, you're consistent about it. And the good thing is, is that what I think Daniel has, I've always said this about Daniel, Daniel has something, when you look at an athlete, you say he has the it factor. And then people say, well, what is the it factor? You say, I don't know what it is, but he has it. Like he has something that 
grabs you. That, you know, that thing. Yeah, he has that. <laughs> he has it. I, I don't know I contend, but he has it. It's, it's, that is incredible when you also are selfless, not selfish with it. And, and we're talking about this, these, these cultures, you know, and, and talking about home and family and soccer or anything I think you're passionate about becomes an extrapolation of that, right? So it becomes an example, you know, it becomes a little microcosm. It becomes a, a, an example of that. So also in a family, I mean, it's, it's the same dynamic if you look at it. You, there are different roles and people complete these roles, but then there's in the end a common goal and a common unit. So There is, and, there's, and with that, there is, there's a, a high level of respect. There has to be consistency of, of that standard that you're always going for. Um, mm. High level of expectations. Mm. Big difference between standards and, and expectations. You're hoping to continue to raise the bar on mm. standards. Expectations are always going to be above the standard. Mm. And so you're constantly pushing, working towards you know, being better. Mm. There's a high level of communication. Great leaders are great communicators. If you can't communicate, very difficult to get your message across. Um, and then and then I think the final piece is, and I'll never forget one of my owners telling me this once. He said, this was very early on in my, my coaching career here. He said, we were, I was implementing my ideas and our results weren't the best, but I knew we were right there. You know, it's kind of like the tipping point, right? We were right there, but just wasn't happening yet. So I had to go into this meeting with a couple of my owners and they, and they, uh, the, the lunch turned into a dinner. That's how long it was. It was like a five-hour meeting. And they were asking me question after question after question, and I was answering, answering. And so we're all done. The one owner said to me, he said, uh, he says, look, I really appreciate you spending this much time with us and explaining to us, you know, all your thoughts and everything you're thinking about. And he said, just understand something. When you start winning regularly, he said, you're never going to hear from me. And interestingly enough, right after that, we started winning. And as time went on, it was less and less. The only thing I ever heard, like I'd see him after he was like, hey, great game. And then... That was it. It says a lot about trust, right? And and again, that's what it goes to as well, right? I mean, but that it, grows with time as well. It does. Okay. You, it's demonstrated okay. performance. Uh, I, you know, I may have said this to you before. I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully I'm not being redundant. But many years ago, I I did a I did a uh, a little bit of an educational thing for myself, um, and so uh, I met with um, some some very very um, high level established uh, professors. I did this study around millennials at the time because obviously I'm not a millennial and I have to work with a lot You're of them. Dealing with a lot of them. Correct. And I, I wanted to I wanted to understand what was the best way to get across to them. And so the interesting thing that I learned and that was that how, how amazing that you do that. How wonderful that you took the time and the energy to do that. No, but that's I think it also it is what it takes to recognize this need for you to understand that and to sort of get the necessary information I, I, that's i think also part of your success and it's it's what you're saying um i think maybe this hungarian culture you accept that you don't know this particular information and you go get the information so so i i for sure spend time trying to uh i, I probably one of my best qualities is i'm really good at hiring much smarter people than i am and surrounding myself i i think that i'm always amazed i see people that they're threatened by smart people or people that do something better than they do. And then they don't, uh, you know, they don't surround themselves with those people because at the end of the day, they wind up failing, right? But if you, if you surround yourself with really smart people, great, you're going to, you're going to get to better answers, better, better, better solutions at the end. And so, 
so anyway, a few years back, I, 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 I met again with these, these professors, which it was incredibly enlightening to me. And, I, and there's a couple of things that came out of the time I spent with them. The first thing that I learned was is that we're in this society of instant gratification. There's these vices that used to be the prevalent vices in our society, right? There was, there was you know, sex, drugs, alcohol, gambling. They were, they were the vices. But there's this new one, and it's your phone. Because it's instant, it's the same, it elicits the same uh, hormone, dopamine. Because what happens is like when your cell phone, let's say you get an email and you hear that sound, you really don't get excited. But when a text message hits, you know that like that's something I have to go and look at. And it, Pavlovian dogs. Right. And so you're like, oh, I, I, I got I to gotta get that. And so anyway, an example would be is, hey, uh, I missed my favorite show. I get on my, I get on my phone. I can get it instantaneously, right? I want to buy something. I go on Amazon on my phone. Boom, it's delivered to me to the next day. Sometimes the same day. Nowadays, if you want a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you can swipe left or swipe right, depending on you know where it's going, right? So you have that ability. But there's two things that you cannot do on your phone. And those two things are your vocation, and I'll explain why, and relationships. Because those two things take one word that you can't get with instant gratification. That is, they both take time. To build a relationship, you need time. To be successful in your job, you need time. What I gained out of that was a very simple thing, and that was I have to spend the time getting to know the players because I'm not going to be able to do it any other way if I don't spend that individual time. And in my job, you understand, I'm with the guys you know, 11 months out of the year. But if you don't know them, just because you're with them 11 months doesn't mean you got to get to know. Them. And I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, it's a lot of work, but it's it's part of it's 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 part. It does it pays off, but it's also it it, it actually pays off in a lot of great ways. It's not just winning a game or whatever. It also pays off in that I have long-lasting relationships with a lot of these guys. It's amazing how they all move back to Kansas City even after they retire. Brilliantly said, beautifully said. Um, but you said your highest quality was surrounding yourself with brilliant people, and I have to give you a compliment here. I think your highest, you have many high qualities. I think you're, I've known you for a few years. I've seen you be incredibly generous and kind with my children. With, do you remember once we, they, they signed a t-shirt, your whole team signed a t-shirt yeah. for a little boy who had fallen ill. Yeah. I mean, you have, you are kind and generous and professional and polite and, and brilliant. So let Thank me you. give you Thank the compliment. You. Thank so. you. I Appreciate that. <laughs> I would like to ask you just a couple more questions. I know you're really busy, so I won't. I won't take too long. What is the Vermes Army? In every soccer club around the world, every football club around the world, they have the fanatics, right? The fanatical fans. The Vermes Army is probably a subset of the ours. Is called the Cauldron. Um, it's a subset group of there. But at the end of the day, I'd like to think that I I, I probably get a little embarrassed with stuff like that, you know, because. It's not, I, I'm not a, I'm not one of individual accolades because I, I truly buy into the, the team aspect. I don't think you can achieve anything on your own. I think you achieve it with others, right? And so, but the way that I would say it is that it's really, I look at it maybe a little different and it's maybe not the Vermese Army, it's, it's the club army. You know, it's, it's, it's sporting Kansas City, it's, it's army. That's what I think it is. It makes you feel uncomfortable. It does. I don't, I don't like stuff like that. I don't, I, I don't. There are a lot of guys that do my job and they love all the, this is a different environment that we're in right now, right? We're talking about things that, how do you do it? There are a lot of coaches that love to get up in front of the TV cameras and do the press conferences and they love all that stuff. That's like, the, if I had to 
put a list out for you, like that would be last on the list for me to do. I'd be, I'd be happy for someone else. Where the difficulty is why you can't let someone else do that is because that narrative is so important. We're going back to telling stories. Correct. It's so important. If you allow somebody else to do that, it could be the the demise or the success of, of what you do. Well, so, you, you are the captain of the ship. Yes. And people want to hear what the captain has to say. Yeah. And so you have to you have to make sure. That's part, and then I would say the hardest thing of the job is always being on. You have to be on mm-hmm. all the time. Because you don't know who's coming and asking what at that time. And if you're not on, you can, again, it could be the difference of, hey, that was great. Or it could be, now i got to spend two days rectifying that. Sure. Sure. I have to do one more follow-up question. Um, the, the, the podcast is called Language and Culture with Dr. J, so I have to go back to language. You have 13 different nations represented, I imagine, probably six, seven languages. Um, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that uh, on a team, perhaps also as a player? How was that? Um, is there a soccer lingo? Is there a soccer language? Yeah, it's a tremendous question. To, to answer that question, yes. There's an international football language. All players can, when they get inside the white lines, they get it. Right, they can they can converse through 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 facial expressions, just gestures, everything. Or do you think it's and it's and it's just a guy can go up to another guy and say like you know you know use his like hand movement and, right mm-hmm. so you can do that. There's something that uh, I hold very very dear, and this is an important aspect. I think part of all those players, and you said it earlier, you know, as a as a as a soccer player, footballer, you get to travel the world. And one of the things I think that players maybe not all players. There's a lot that do, and there's some that don't. And I believe it's my part of my job to educate those that don't. And, and this is what I'm going to say. That is, when you come to a different country, it's incumbent upon you to learn that language or as much as you can. So, like, when I was in Spain, I tried to learn as much Spanish as I could. I mean, I remember I was, I was two months in, and I was doing an interview coming off the field at halftime in Spanish, doing the best I could, right, and, 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 and working towards it. I believe the people in that country – Respect it. Your teammates, your people around you all respect that. I, uh, so the number one language that is here in the team, everybody has to learn English, and we're speaking English. Now, to help a player adapt and adjust and to feel comfortable in the early periods, I can go up to a player who you know, speaks Spanish and I can have a one-on-one and make him feel comfortable and him to understand directly from me when I want to get something across. And sometimes a few words are enough as well, yeah. knowing, knowing how to say hello. Cor- and- correct. But even like for me, when I when I played on the U.S. national team and traveled, I remember being in uh, Saudi Arabia. I went there for the uh, the Intercontinental Cup, which is at that time, uh, you're ta- we were the champions of the uh, CONCACAF Gold. We won the Gold Cup. And I was the captain of the, of the U.S. team at the time. We played in the, the, the Intercontinental Cup, which is right the year before the World Cup. And we were playing with everybody, Argentina, everybody. We had our own liaison that was uh, Saudi Arabian, uh, a guy by the name of Mohammed. I, I, every day I would learn a new word with him. And so it was it's the attitude. It, it was the important thing for me. I thought that, again, to show respect to, but again, our players, um, they all, we provide the English lessons to try to teach them. But it's an important aspect. And then the, and then the final piece to, to, to what you said is I think, I think that for their, for their life, the more languages that they can speak, just so much. They're, they're, I just think that they are so much more valuable in everything that they do, and that's that's a, it's a big part. I can't say anything but that I, I, of course, advocate learning as many languages as you can, and and uh, being able to speak to people in their in their native tongue or, or the language that means that means home to them. Yeah, what when but, I listen to you, like an example, I know, like I, I just hear you pronounce different words in in 
depending on what the country it is. And you, you, you do everything you can to do it in the accent of the country. Right. And I think that, first off, that's an incredible uh, uh, quality that you have. The other part of it is, is that when you're in those countries, people appreciate that very, very much. It's when you, it's when you, you don't and you have the arrogance of thinking that they need to uh, adapt to you. It, it's, you know, wars, wars are, are, are started because of those things, right? And so that, I think, is a huge, huge part of getting along in life is, is, is finding a way to collaborate, not to be the, the person that is the, you know, standing your ground. Sure. So I began the episode by speaking about the unifying power of soccer. Certainly we have seen other sports um, exert this type of power, ice hockey in Canada, rugby in South Africa, New Zealand. Would you mind telling us how and why, in your opinion, does soccer unite? Just in closing, kind of, what is... Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I probably would say that you don't have to be big, you don't have to be small, you don't have to be fast. It, it's, it's a sport in which everyone can participate. I also think that there are, there's different lines of people, right? Because there's a goalkeeper, then there's kind of the defensive line, the midfield line, and you got the forwards line. And what you also have in there is you have different mindsets, right? Different personality types that work in those places. Um, you know, it's interesting. Like, I'll, I'll ask you a quick question, and I'll, I'll be able to tell something about you right away. Okay. And I ask okay. all my players. It's a really simple question. Whenever you've played a game, any type, it could be a board game, it could be a sport, doesn't matter. Do you love to win or hate to lose? Love to win. So that means you're in a, you're more of an attacking type person. Okay. I think if, I, I think I am. I mean, if, if he could tell you how I if, if you answer, sports. Normally, if you answer <laughs> the question that you hate to lose... You're a little bit more a defender in a, in a team. And so, like, I'll ask, imagine I'm on an interview and I ask a defender, like a person that, that we're thinking about bringing in, I'll ask them and say, hey, do you like, you love to win or you hate to lose? And the guy says, I hate to lose. I'm thinking, well, he already has the mindset mm-hmm. of that, right? But if he says he loves to win, I'm thinking, mm, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if he'll stick his face in front of the ball to block it from going in the goal. Mm-hmm. And I need, I need that guy. I don't need the other guy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it unifies people because it's, it's a sport that anybody can do it, right? It, it, it's, again, as we all know, like in basketball, you have to be pretty tall to, to play basketball. Can you get away with it? There's anomalies, but traditionally you have to be tall. Football. Point guard. <laughs> right, right, right. American football, right? I mean, you know what you need there, right? I mean, there's certain characters. But in soccer, it's amazing how, I mean, look at Messi. He's the best player in the world. And he's, he's like this little guy. He's unbelievable. And so I think that's a big part of it. I also think that, um, you know, when you, when you look at American football, you have this one guy that controls the ball the whole time, right? When you, took, when you look at soccer, whoever has the ball is the quarterback, if you're related to American football. The rest of the world, culturally, people want one. Think about how many, think about all this, the, 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 the politics of the world where communism was... As we know, it's, it, it, it basically, it just pushes the individual down, right? It takes your creativity, it takes all away. But everybody's craving for that, that freedom. I, I want to be able to do what I want to do. When you have the ball, you can do what you want to do in soccer. It's not, you're not, it's not one person gets mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what it is. I think that's why so many people relate to the game. And how does it unify the spectator? You may not like what I'm going to say. I think, uh, I think sports, and especially soccer, 
for a lot of countries, it's their religion. But more importantly, it's almost like a cult. But for that club, right? So I get behind your club. We're, we're all behind you and we're together in this. It, it's, like, it's like countries in wars against each other. No one's killing anybody. That's correct. <laughs> Let's hope not. Hmm? So it's, it's a way of finding your because not everybody can play the game professionally but guess what i can be the fan i can be a part of that and we win we all win or we all lose look when i moved to to germany one of the things that frustrated me the most i mean i think germany is a great country and i and i live there and i'm happy to live there as well um and I, I found a lot of people very critical of Germany, and it was almost sort of, uh, you know, in the, in the U.S. people are very patriotic. In, in Germany, it's sort of culturally people are non-patriotic. And it was through football that I discovered people being able to express some of their patriotism and their pride, and, and, and that's wonderful. So that's just one example of yeah. how, how I think it is absolutely very positive. So Yeah, I, it is, but I think I, I would agree. Everything you said, I would only state that when you're just dealing with your club, it, it's kind of like this. It's even stronger. It's, it's, it's kind of like when I, I never did it when I was in college. And I don't have against it. It, it. It's just that I, probably because I was playing soccer. But it's when kids go to college and they go to a sorority or fraternity. They're, they want to belong to something. Mm-hmm. right? I belong to the soccer team in, in, in my college. So you had something you identify with. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's what it is with, with soccer. They identify. They mm-hmm. they're, they're connected to it. Yes, I would like just to make a short mention about the hating to lose that in my philosophy always this that all of my athletes doesn't matter individual sport or i was doing for conditioning for all sports that always i told them when they lost that to make a conclusion why did you lose be positive about it because always you you can learn something from losing mm. you learn where you did a mistake and that's when i tried always to analyze with them and that that was helping them the next time to win it's 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 a great one because uh, i always uh, look at an individual and see if they have these three things that they can do. The first is if they're self-aware. The second thing is then, and it's different because being self-aware is one thing. The second is, can you self-assess? And then the third is, can you self-correct? And that's exactly what you're referring to is that you're, you're finding a way. Yeah. Obviously you're not happy that you lost, but you have to find the reason why you did to then the next time you can obviously hopefully get a better result because of why, why you lost learning why you did. That, that, that self-awareness, self-assessment, self-correction is huge if you know how to do it. So always I talk to my athletes, never be down and then uh, uh, suffering from losing or, some, or, or not winning. And always to smile because the smile makes you the positive hormones in your system. And then in that way you can survive and be better next time. And always to smile and say, yes, I love it. <laughs> Wonderful. Any last words you'd like to leave the listeners with? I, I think this was a great conversation. I really do. I appreciate it very much. Um, I, I would say that uh, I'm always amazed that uh, sometimes, um, whether it's professions, uh, they, they lack association by people. But whether it's sport, business, politics, whatever it is, at the end, all of the same cultural aspects are the same. But I, as I said earlier, I think that so much comes down to leadership. It, it it's not because the leader can take you where you want to go. You just need someone to provide a direction and a, a, a roadmap that you can then participate in. And I think what gets lost in so much of, of this day and age is this this ability to collaborate and, and look for better solutions as opposed to focusing so much on the negative. It's amazing how fortunate all of us are, but sometimes we forget 
you know how fortunate we are and that's that's a sad that's the sad thing the great thing is when you can have conversations like this this is uh very appreciative i'm very appreciative of, of the conversation thank you thank you very very much and thank you all for listening Make sure to check us out on our website, kulturium.com, C-U-L-T-U-R-E-U-M.com, or on our social media pages at DRJ Podcast or at Quadil, Q-U-A-D-Y-L-L-E. Thank you for listening to Language and Culture with Dr. J. This is Dr. J signing out.